If you work in public health and don't have a degree in public health, this is the episode for you. In this episode, I feature Dr. Ross Brownson, Distinguished Professor of Public Health at Washington University in St. Louis, to give you a 30-minute crash course on evidence-based public health. So get ready. You might even want to take some notes. We'll go over what evidence-based public health is, what we can call evidence, why intentions and perseverance are truly not enough when it comes to doing good for the planet and the underserved, things that can go wrong in this practice, and how we can begin to incorporate some of the strategies as public health workers today. For more information about Dr. Brownson, click the link in the description for his full bio. I hope you have your notebooks out. My name is Hethel Daman, and this is The Global Health Pursuit. Ross, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I think this is a really important topic for people who are interested in global public health, not just in academia, but also in practice. So just first off, Ross, tell me a little bit about yourself and what you do. Sure. Yeah. So I'm a professor at Washington University in St. Louis. So the main part of my day job is obviously teaching students. And then I do a lot of research in an area we call implementation science, which basically means we know a lot about what would make people healthier, help them to be healthier. We invest in that, but we don't always connect it up with the organizations that could deliver that. And so implementation science tries to connect the science with community practice and organizational change and policy change to improve health. And my background is in epidemiology, and I spent the first eight years of my career working in a state health department. So a lot of the work I do is shaped by what goes on in a state public health agency and then working with local partners, which is, you know, state and local public health is how most public health services are delivered in the United States. Right. So you teach a evidence-based public health course at Washington yep. University. And it's very interesting because, you know, I spoke with your wife and she was telling me that, you know, this course is one week. Or it could be, it's, it, you know, there's a one-week course and then there's multiple lengths of courses, right? But it's essentially like a crash course on evidence-based public health. And it's for anybody who's interested in working in the public health space to understand a little bit more about how to help people, you know, in a better way. Who is this public health course really targeted towards? Yeah, so... As a backdrop, one of the things people may not know about public health, there are several hundred thousand what we would call public health workers mm -hmm. in the United States, and that's mostly governmental mm -hmm. public health, state and local public health. The vast majority of those individuals do not have any formal training in public health. So that's a, a real challenge because they come from all different disciplines. It's sort of this, it's a mosaic right. of people where you might get someone with a research background or a English background or a community organizing background. But there's a core set of skills that we would like people to have in right. public health. And so the point of the course, and it started about 20 years ago, was there's a vast need for on-the-job training for people working in public health who don't have any formal training in a public health discipline like environmental health or policy change or epidemiology. Right. And so it's meant for what we call sort of mid-level public health practitioners. So that might be Let's say someone is running the immunization program for the state of California. 
that would be the kind of person, especially if that person doesn't have the formal training in public health. And it's funny because we started the course thinking, oh, we'll, we'll train a bunch of people and then we'll be good to go and we can sort of retire the course. But there's a lot of turnover and the turnover has gotten even, even more so right. over the last three years during COVID. And so there's basically a limitless need for this kind of on the job training in a, in a short format. I was sort of joke. It's like getting your master of public health in a week. There's a lot we cover in a short period of time, but it's a great, it's a great experience. I think that we just did a course several weeks ago and the students are terrific and we always learn a lot from them because they're, you know, they're experiential right. learning. They're, they're working in public health practice. They're the heart and soul of trying to keep this nation healthy. I mean, question for you, when do people realize that they may need some training like this? Yeah, it's a good question. I think that it's probably as soon as they, we, we talk sometimes about this idea of wicked problems and that those are usually complex problems. They've usually been around for a while and they have complex, difficult solutions. So probably when it really hits them is they face some kind of a wicked problem, like handgun mm-hmm. violence in, in a city or excess deaths from COVID or increasing use of, of electronic cigarettes and vaping among youth, where they see something going on in their local community and they want to build their skills to be able to solve that in what we sometimes would call a wicked problem. That's probably where it hits. And then sometimes it's most of the public health in the United States is funded through the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And so if a practitioner is is getting funding to do something, they may realize, oh, I've got this grant. I've, I've got to do this now. And my team doesn't have all the skills mm. to do it. And so we need to figure out how we pick up those skills while people are already on the job because they can't stop and go back and get their public health degree. So they're doing it. It's, it's sort of like, you know, you're, you're building the airplane when right. you're flying it. And that's sort of how public health is. That is so true. And I, I think that it's interesting because I think a lot of people are so well-intentioned in terms of what they want to do to help, you know, to serve the world. And then oftentimes their well-intentions are kind of, you know, they, they face a wall. And there are books that I've read. One of them was Toxic Charity just talking about like, intentions are not enough. You need to understand yeah. the community and gather evidence in order to create a better program to help sustain whatever yeah. you're doing. I think that that leads me into my next question. So the slides that you had sent me around, I think this is like the a slide deck that you teach, right? And one of the quotes on one of the slides said, Public health workers deserve to get somewhere by design, not just by perseverance. That kind of sums up sums up kind of what I said. You know, it's like all intentions. But there's no design behind it. You know, this was really profound by, for the work of public health workers. So I want you to talk about a little bit, you know, what does this really mean? Like, what does design mean? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, that quote really resonated for, with me. It was in a, a journal article I read years ago. And Public health workers enter for all the right reasons. They enter because they want to make a difference in society. They want to address health equity. They want to make the world a better, healthier, happier place that people live in. And that's where the perseverance comes by, but they don't always have the design. And so the design to me is sort of the roadmap. And that's what we try to teach in not only our evidence-based public health training, but in any of the trainings we do is, is you want to 
sort of see where you're going. A great example historically is I was thinking about is actually smallpox. Mm. You know, smallpox for a hundred years in the in the world killed 500 million people, and we developed surveillance systems about how to track smallpox. We understood where it was going on. We understand the transmission. And then, of course, the biggie was there was a vaccination for smallpox. And the world largely developed countries funding it, but then the World Health Organization mobilized, and smallpox was effectively eradicated in 1980. And that's where you had the data showing there's an enormous public health problem here. And then the design, the roadmap was we need to have surveillance. We need to know what's going on. We need to understand who this is really affecting. We need to understand transmission and prevention. And then, of course, the scientific advance of vaccines has been enormous. And so I think there's an example on a very global scale that you could bring down to any local community problem where you start with quantifying the issue. That's usually through epidemiology. You think about setting some kind of a goal. What are we trying to achieve here? We think about what are the ways to achieve a goal in the public health parlance. That would be what's the evidence-based practice or policy to address this? And then how do we implement and how do we evaluate? And so those are sort of like we have this thing we call the evidence-based public health wheel that you that right. you've seen. And that's that's what we're trying to do when we when we take people through this training. When you say surveillance, what does that mean? That means the systems of it's usually disease oriented, but it could be it could be risk factors. So that could be a good example is cancer. Cancer is a reportable condition in the United States so that every cancer case that's reported eventually gets into a cancer registry. So we've got that becomes surveillance data so that we can now track our rates of. So there's usually in the in the world I live in, in descriptive epidemiology, we talk about person, place and time. Person is who's being affected places, what's the geographic distribution, U.S., globally, otherwise, and time is what's happening over time with a disease or risk factor. And surveillance is basically the, it's one of the foundational public health tools to be able to make change. That makes sense. There was a a slide that I saw in the deck that was really so funny. And it said, Alice, it showed Alice in Wonderland. She talks to the Cheshire cat asking him which way she should go. And he goes, well, where do you want to go? And she's like, I don't know. And then he's like, so, yeah. so he says, well, then it doesn't really matter where you go, you know? Um, yeah. So that makes so much sense. And that's the surveillance mm-hmm. tool. So the surveillance tool is helping you tell where you want to go. So are lung cancer rates going up or down? Are rates of use of e-cigarettes going up or down? What's a target we should reach? And then backing up from that, what are the ways to reach that target? You know, if you don't know where you want to go, then it's hard to know how to get there. And that's sort of the Alice in Wonderland story that, that always resonates. With. I think that's an analogy for life, too. <laughs> yeah, it Such is. a big it analogy is. for life. So can you give some examples of where this could really go wrong? Yeah. On the big picture, where it goes wrong is the biggest one, I think, overall, is we vastly under under-resource and under-invest in prevention in in the United States Mm -hmm. and in many countries around the world. So if you look at the billions of dollars we spend every year, actually trillions of dollars we spend every year on health, especially on health care, probably something like 5% of the trillions of dollars spent is spent on prevention. Most of the money we spend is is on treatment Mm -hmm. of disease. And that 
in some ways is because there's industries involved in treatment. So there's people who make drugs, there's people who make, you know, surgical instruments and other methods of treatment. But it's also that if you think about prevention, which is what public health is all about, when we're doing prevention or public health really well, it's invisible. So if someone's got lung cancer and they're going into the doctor, they know what the issue is and they know how to treat it many times. Whereas if you're trying to prevent something, if you do your job really well in public health, then events aren't happening. You know, the people aren't getting sick. The risk factors right. are going down. So I think sometimes where it goes wrong is we underinvest and we don't tell the story well enough about the value of prevention and what it means for people's daily lives. And then I think the other thing where evidence-based practices sometimes don't work out the way they should is that we don't always have the data. We don't always have the systems in place or, you know, if you think about what we talked about surveillance data, it's not a real glamorous topic Mm. to think about. I'm going to try to get the state government to invest another hundred thousand dollars in a, in a surveillance system because it's, it's sort of the backbone of public health, but it, it isn't very glamorous. And so I think it's also selling public health as a profession, which in some ways during COVID has become easier and harder. People now know what a public health agency is. They know what an epidemiologist is a lot more than they did three plus years ago before COVID hit. But it also has created a lot of stress on the public health system. If you think like the mental health challenges that have come out through COVID, those have been not only for the population, but the mental health of workers in, in public health and in clinical care. And the turnover has gone up. There's the... COVID politicized. I think the other challenge with all this politicized, is the, yeah. how politicized that public mm-hmm. health can get. You know, I've had colleagues who are running local health departments and have had their families threatened oh, wow. and have had to quit their jobs because of the how political things like masking or vaccinations have become. And, you know, that's not that's not good for for our country. That's not good for our communities. Yeah, that just makes me think, you know, in terms of prevention, it's almost you can almost like boil it down to eat healthy, exercise, and keep social with people. Yeah, don't, don't smoke. smoke. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, follow preventive care, like get your vaccinations and and do early detection for cancer, like you know mammography and mm-hmm. and colon cancer screening, and yeah, the the actual practices we know very well. That's where that implementation of science comes in. It's getting people to do them. And, and there's a quote that, that came out of the Canadian work years ago that said, we need to make the healthy choice the easy choice. And what we've done too often in society is that we've made it difficult for people to be healthy. Mm. And people want to be healthy. If you ask people like their top five priorities in life, health is right. always in the top five. But we don't always make it easy for people to be healthy, especially people living in disadvantaged circumstances, living in communities that are that are resor- where resources are much more limited. And so we have to do a lot better job of addressing the things we know work and applying them more equally across all, all settings and all parts of the world. I mean, this is something that, you know, when you were talking, I just thought when you said that it's hard for people to, like society is actually making it harder for people to be healthy, it almost makes me think of the high prices of like in grocery stores, you know, and things Mm -hmm. like that. And I mean, the other day I went to the grocery store and I literally bought only like produce and meats. And they say 
you know, if you're at the perimeter of the store, that's like the, where the healthiest things are. And then I get up to the counter and it's like, what? Like, you know, and they say, yeah. oh yeah, it's like hundred dollars for one week for two people. And I can only imagine people who are already in a tough situation and they need to keep their children healthy. It's almost easier for them to just go and, you know, go grab some Chick-fil-A and I don't know. The, yeah. That's, that, that's a, that's a different conversation altogether. Yeah. It's very important though. And I think the, the concept you hit on is access and access can be physical access. So if you live in certain communities, you could live in a food desert where even if you want to go to a grocery store and, and get healthy foods, it's very difficult to do that. And let's say you don't have a car and you have to take three different buses right. to get to a grocery mm-hmm. store. So that's sort of the physical access, but then what you're all talk, talking about economic mm-hmm. access, that even when you get to the store are the, are the healthiest foods, the cheapest foods and too often they're not. So I think those are kind of the, that's exactly the kind of making the healthy choice, the easy choice, sort of an example. And you could think of any of the risk factors you mentioned about getting physical activity or not smoking or getting health screenings for early detection. You could sort of play out the same access issues for any one of those that might look a little different, but it's going to have a lot of, a lot of similarities across those. Right. So the title of your course is Evidence-Based Public Health. Can you give some examples of like what is evidence? When you think about it, it's like almost vague. So what mm-hmm. is evidence? What are some types of evidence? And then we'll, we'll talk from there. Yeah, I, I always say, so for a scientist, evidence is going to be some kind of a peer-reviewed mm-hmm. study <laughs> that ends up in a journal or a book or some other sort of scientific venue. That's a small slice of the world. And like, Part of the world I live in with researchers, they do really well communicating about evidence to other researchers, but not so well to everyone else. (laughs) Then if you get sort of a public health practice audience, it would be things like we talked about surveillance or program evaluation data or interviewing people who are affected by a condition in a community to find out what the barriers are for their prevention or their care. And then you can get to more of the general public. You know, I think if you say the word evidence to sort of your average public, it might be more from the justice mm-hmm. system or from crime, you know, like the shows that are on now, the CSI and the laws and orders of the world, where you've got sort of evidence of a crime or evidence that would be used in a courtroom setting. And some of that evidence is people's experience or word of mouth. But even in health, there's some really important decisions we make about health that are word of mouth. Like think about if you move to a new community and you've got young kids, and you're trying to find a pediatrician, how do we do that? We don't go to some scientific summary. We usually talk to our colleagues and say, uh, do you know a good pediatrician, usually the people where you work, because that's where most people get their health insurance, and then you try that person out. Well, that's not very scientific, but it seems to work for most people. So evidence is truly in the eye of the beholder. We need to think about who the audience is for the messaging we're doing, and if that's a if that's, you know, your mother or grandmother or a colleague or a researcher or a policymaker and talk in the way that evidence makes sense for that audience. And I think that's partly both for researchers and public health practitioners. We don't always do a great job. So what I'm hearing is that evidence can be both qualitative and quantitative. Yeah. And it can be scientific and it can be experiential or people's lived mm-hmm. experience and it can be anecdotal. Right. I mean, 
that might not, you know, if you think about, well, California is setting up a strategic plan for the next 20 years for public health. Well, you probably don't want to base that on anecdotal <laughs> evidence, but it still is, it's still a right. form of evidence. And people's, you know, collective anecdotes are lived experience. And so that's also important to keep in mind. And, and it's really important as what you said. It's both quantitative, the numbers, but it's also qualitative, the words. And both are important and we shouldn't only value one or the other. That reminds me of a conversation that I had with Lumi Malambo. She runs an organization called JB Dondolo and she works in Zimbabwe and she is focusing on clean water implementation there. Now she was talking about in the very beginning of her work in Zimbabwe, she thought that the people needed a health clinic. So she started working on a health clinic and then the people there were like, what are you doing? We want, we don't want this. We want clean water. You know, mm -hmm. and so that's evidence in itself. So yeah. that makes a lot of sense. So what makes evidence strong or weak? Hey there, I hope you're enjoying this episode. And if you are, would you do me a tiny favor? Show me some love by doing one or more of these three things. A. Click the support this podcast link in the description to donate a few dollars toward the production of this podcast. My dream is to do this full time and your support would mean the world. B, you can write me a review on Apple Podcasts and or rate me on Spotify to give me a boost in the algorithm. Or C, share this episode with someone who would love it just as much as you do. I truly and deeply appreciate you. Let's get back to the episode. Well, there, there are formal principles that you could follow. So when you look at a certain body of literature, for example, how the evidence has been decided upon. So that can contain things like study or evaluation design or how a study or an evaluation is carried out. And there's a whole range of formal rating systems for those. And the strength of evidence, I always think like the strength of evidence depends on the kind of question you're trying to answer. Like if you're studying the effectiveness of different types of drugs, usually they'll do that through a randomized trial where people get randomized to drug A or drug B or placebo. And the randomization is a way to, it's in a way sort of leveling out the differences between mm -hmm. people that you might not always be measured, but it lets you kind of level things out and know that whatever you find for effectiveness of drug is attributable to the drug, not to some other random thing going on in a right. population. Well, then think about studying something like policy change. Like think about, let's say that a state like Massachusetts passes a huge increase in their tobacco hmm. tax. You'd study that. You can't randomize anything to study that. You're going to just study how smoking rates go up or down based on a policy change. And so what I would say is the the evidence you want to do, the strength of the evidence is needs to just be related to the kind of evaluation question you're asking. And that's what we try to teach in, in all of our trainings around that. And then sort of the strength of the evidence is also, if you're trying to reach a certain audience, who's delivering the messages about right. that evidence? So if you're talking to a policymaker, you might want like an elected policymaker, be best to have someone from their district come and talk to them about it, not not some scientific researcher nerd from the university, right? And so that, and we call that sort of the 
the message deliverer, or sometimes we call it the opinion yeah. leader. It's really important that not only what the message is, but who's delivering. That it. is so, it's so true. It's like, who are you? <laughs> you know, yeah. you don't live here. It's almost like when politicians run for like mayor or whatever, you know, run for office in a different, completely different state. And you're like, what do you, yeah. why? <laughs> yeah, I know. They're just going where they can win. So how can we begin to incorporate some of these strategies as public health workers today? You know, there's probably a whole bunch of different things we could do. One would be have public health be more visible and message better. Some of the things I was talking about, about selling yeah. prevention a little more equally as we sell disease mm -hmm. treatment and, and figuring out ways to communicate more effectively, I think, is really important. A lot of what we talked about had to do with training capacity building. So making sure that we do everything we can to have the most highly trained public health workforce, both in the United States and globally, that we possibly right. can and invest in some of these sort of training and capacity building programs that we know work, but don't always get invested in because resources have to be spent somewhere. There are a lot of really great resources out there that we rely on in, in our trainings. A lot of, are with the CDC in Atlanta. A lot are with groups. There's, there's one I really like called What Works for Health that is, is a, an initiative funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. And then I think a lot of the work probably the last five to eight years has been around uh, centering health equity in everything right. we do more and not making sort of health equity an afterthought where you measure something and say, well, did this population get healthier or not? But making it the centerpiece for a lot of the things we do. I think that is also really important. And then fundamentally, at the bottom line of this, the biggest impact on people's health is policy. And elected policy only gets put in place that's supporting public health if we elect people who are mm -hmm. going to do that. And so I think voting, voting is a public health issue, equal access to voting is a public health issue, and electing people, like I always tell the students in my class, which you know tend to be 20-somethings, mm -hmm. people in the youngest age group vote at a dramatically lower rate. The people in their 20s compared to the people in their 60s and 70s vote at a dramatically different rate than in those groups. Younger people vote a lot less often in some, some elections, even half as likely. And so if people voted, like if young people voted the same as people in their 60s and 70s, we would have a very different looking set of elected officials. And so I think voting is a public health issue and public health is driven by the elected officials and the policies they implement. And I think that hasn't always been seen as something that's central, as something that we could incorporate more in, in what we're trying to do. And then I'd sort of, sort of circle back to funding and resources is put our money where our mouth is, that if we think prevention is important and we want to have healthier communities, we need to vet, invest more in prevention, not the kind of measly 5% that we that we invest now out of our total health budget. So what are we spending our most of our money on? Disease treatment. The kinds of things that happen in the last six months or a year of life, you know, expensive medical treatments, expensive surgeries, transplantations, you know, expensive cancer treatments. Most of the money will be spent on chronic disease treatment, which, you know, the biggies are obviously heart disease, stroke, cancer, diabetes. 
And it's different in different parts of the world. You know, in, in lower and middle income countries, infectious disease will, will have a larger burden than the chronic diseases here are. But we invest a large proportion of our, our total health dollars in the last six months of life. And we underinvest in youth and we underinvest in maternal health and we underinvest in general in prevention. And so, and shifting that is not a simple thing, right. but it's definitely one worth, worth fighting for and working on. What do you think the first steps are to shift? Probably starting with policy, probably getting officials elected and elected bodies, local, state, national, international, who will represent the promotion of public right. health and center the promotion of public health. Right. This has been really, really interesting. I would say this is like a 30 minute crash course. <laughs> yeah, it sort of is. Ross, thank you so much. Do you have anything else that you'd like to share with our audience? It's been really great talking with you. You had some great questions and anything we can do to, to put public health in the front of people's thinkings and have people understand public health more and the good that public health does is all for the better. So thank you for bringing this topic up and having this conversation. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you'd like to learn more about today's topic and guest, head over to the show notes linked in the description of this episode. There, you can get access to resources, links, and ways you can get involved in the pursuit for global health. And if you love this episode, don't forget to write me a review on Apple Podcasts and rate the podcast on Spotify. It helps me get in front of more people just like you and continues to elevate the causes we are so passionate about. I'll see you in the next one.